Superhumanize. Accelerated evolution. Welcome to another episode of the Superhumanized podcast, where we dive deep into the realms of health, wellness, and personal optimization. I'm Ariana Sommer, and I'm your guide on this journey towards superhumanizing our lives. Today, we're going on a fascinating exploration with none other than Rob Wolf, a titan in the world of nutrition, fitness, and longevity. Rob, a former research biochemist, is not only a New York Times and Wall Street Journal bestselling author, but also a beacon of knowledge in the health and wellness community. Imagine unraveling the secrets of our ancestral diet with the Paleo Solution, rewiring our appetites with Wire to Eat, and challenging conventional wisdom about meat consumption with Sacred Cow. Today, Rob joins us to delve into these captivating topics and more, but that's not all. With a background that spans from consulting for NASA and the Naval Spatial Warfare Resiliency Program to co-founding the revolutionary healthy community, Rob's insights bridge the gap between complex science and practical, life-changing advice. As someone who's passionately plant-based, I'm particularly excited to engage in a thought-provoking dialogue with Rob. We'll navigate the nuances of nutrition, the intricacies of individual health and longevity, and even the controversial crossroads where meat eaters and vegans meet. What does the latest science say about extending our lifespan through diet? How does our gut microbiome play into our mental health? And can technology truly personalize our path to optimal health? And most importantly, how do we embrace resilience as we age? These are just a few of the areas we'll tackle. So whether you're a longtime listener or joining us for the first time, prepare to be enlightened, challenged, and inspired. Let's not just live longer, but live better. Let's superhumanize. summer and I have passionately dedicated the last 12 years of my life to creating the ultimate human experience mentally, physically and spiritually based on the most powerful ancient teachings and cutting edge modern discoveries and technologies. The Superhumanized podcast is a show committed to sharing what I have learned from the world's leading experts in order to help you achieve your full potential and create your best life ever. Rob Wolf, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. I feel like I should be taller than five foot nine with an introduction like that. Thank you. <laughs> you are most kind. I have followed your work and your mission for a long time. I have a huge amount of respect for you. You have changed countless people's lives, especially in a world where we're bombarded with choices, often not so good choices, uh, with regards to our nutrition, for example. And I'm curious, you have been in this world for quite some time now. And I'd like to know how has your understanding of nutrition evolved since the publication of your book, The Paleo Solution? Oh, gosh. I'm hopefully a little less dogmatic about things and a little more pragmatic. I try to meet people where they are and offer choices and solutions. I got into all this because I had a really significant health crisis. I developed ulcerative colitis when I was about 24, 25, and I'm five foot nine, 170 pounds, reasonably fit for, for an old guy. But at the low ebb of my ulcerative colitis, I was about 125, 130 pounds. So 
I'm not a big guy. If you imagine 50 pounds less of me there, like that's where I was. And I thought I was going to die. And I was facing surgery and immunosuppressant drugs. I was actually preparing to enter medical school at this time. And so I knew enough about those therapies that it's not a good outcome. Like just whittling parts of your digestive tract out is not good. Immunosuppressant drugs increase your likelihood of dying from a host of different things to say nothing of infectious disease. And at that time, there really wasn't any acknowledgement that alterations in our diet and lifestyle could dramatically impact autoimmune type conditions. And so this is what launched me into looking at all this. And it, 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 not to divert this too far, but it was my mother had always been sick, had always had these kind of gut related issues. And it was right around this time that I was really in my health crisis. I got a, a phone call from my mom and she said, Hey, my rheumatologist told me that I have celiac, which is a gluten intolerance, autoimmune driven gluten intolerance. And I'm also reactive to grains, legumes, and dairy. Now, at the time, I was vegan. And so the dairy part, I was, okay, I, I get that. That should be a problem. Like, that kind of fits into my worldview. But I was thinking, no grains or legumes? Like, what, what on earth does one eat? And it, it was, it, it's funny looking back because I was living in Seattle. I was a grad student I lived in a basement apartment that the ceiling was like maybe six inches above my head. It had a tiny north facing window. I went to the lab before the sun came up. I came home after the sun went down. The role of vitamin D, circadian biology, none of that was on my radar at that time. So I, I think for me, my dietary stuff was not working, but there was nothing I was doing right. I was sleeping three or four hours a night. I was living like a vampire. I had, when I did eventually check my vitamin D levels, they were like 12. So I, I was barely above like having rickets at that time. So it was this whole mess that kind of drove me into looking for a solution for myself. And with the, the input that my mom gave me, I was just thinking about things. I said, okay, no grains, no legumes, no dairy. What would I eat if I didn't eat that? And it, it this was 1998. It's a little bit back in, in history, but somehow this idea of something called a Paleolithic diet kind of popped into my head. I was thinking, okay, there's Neolithic. That was the development of agriculture. Before that, humans were hunter-gatherers. And so I went into the house and into a search engine, this new search engine called Google at the, at the time that shows how old I am. I put into the, the search engine Paleolithic diet and there wasn't a lot there. But what was interesting is what I found really talked a lot about gut and autoimmune related issues. And I was so sick and so desperate at that time that I thought I've, I literally have nothing to lose. And so I put together what was basically a low carb paleo type diet and the results for me were shocking. Like it, it absolutely saved my life. And as I started looking at continuing along a traditional medical track, becoming a doctor, I just couldn't imagine continuing that and spending another eight years learning about disease and pathology when I knew that circadian biology, gut health, appropriate glycemic load, all of these things were so critical and really the foundation of health. And it was, oddly enough, right around this time, 
I was still poking around on the internet and I found this weird workout called CrossFit and I started getting involved with that. And I went on to found the first and fourth CrossFit affiliate gyms and worked in and around CrossFit HQ for a number of years. But when we opened our gym, it provided me a, a brick and mortar clinical setting to be able to work with people and try to help them affect change. And two years after we were open, we were picked as one of men's health top 30 gyms in America because we just had people coming from all over the world to work with us in these kind of gut and autoimmune related issues. And so that it was really saving myself first and then looking around and seeing the people around me that so many of them had these kind of weird gut and autoimmune related issues, insulin resistant issues. And that was really preventable, very treatable, but you needed something different than a walk-in medical clinic or like a 15 minute consult with your doctor. You really needed community and support and folks who could meet you where you were and to help you make these changes because nothing is perhaps more challenging than diet and lifestyle change. Absolutely. And for yourself, of course, you were facing something really heavy. You were feeling so unwell. So a a uh, pretty big change, I imagine, was something that would come a little easier, not easy, by mm -hmm. no means, not mean to minimize it, but let's say people who are a little bit unwell and who are faced with the possibility of making a change may not as quickly make a change as if they really feel their life and their well-being is threatened. Would that be a fair assessment? Absolutely. Like people ask me, don't you miss bread? Don't you miss this? Don't you miss that? And when you are literally facing death from malnutrition because I couldn't absorb everything, that's how inflamed my guts were. Everything else is easy by comparison. The fact that I have a fairly limited dietary option now to deal with my rheumatoid arthritis, essential tremor syndrome, and a couple other things that I have it's frustrating at times, but when I look back at where I was and I really didn't expect to live into my thirties and yeah, I look at it as a blessing that I've been able to figure these things out and yeah, I'm just grateful that has changed. And it is interesting folks who are maybe only a little bit sick. Sometimes they don't quite have the leverage or the motivation to really make that, that change that could keep them from becoming really sick. Yes. And the unfortunate thing about that is, as you also surely know, is that once we, our system gets out of balance, we're dealing with inflammation, we're dealing with all kinds of symptoms that then may actually, after months or years, manifest into a chronic disease that's mm -hmm. not as easy to manage. I personally can relate very much what you're saying about grains. I'm not celiac. I'm just gluten sensitive. I notice mm. a difference. I'll make exceptions. I'm in Paris. I'll have my... <laughs> baguette, I'll have my croissants for a few days in a row, I'll notice a difference immediately in my skin within 24 to 36 hours, like clockwork, which of course blemishes on the skin is also an indication that there is inflammation, there's something mm -hmm. going on in my GI. I notice when I eat a lot of grains, I don't feel that great. I'm sluggish. My brain doesn't work as well. I put on weight that's not even related to the calories. So for me, also, optimal nutrition is very low in grains. Something that has is interesting to me, though, is when we look at grains and how we're growing them nowadays, and also when we're looking, let's just look at bread, which was called the staff of life. The way right. we, you know, the, the way we produce bread nowadays is 
completely different from how it was made, let's say, 100 years ago, where there was a fermentation process. Mm -hmm. involved. There's time involved. Now we don't have time. We need to cut the corners. We need to make sure to produce cheap bread quickly. So we're turning something that could actually be very nutritious and healthy into something that causes disease, especially when it's incorporated into our everyday lives. Yeah, absolutely. And it's worth mentioning that there are populations, so if you're Scottish or Irish in particular, there's a high frequency of the genes for celiac disease. Like I'm, <laughs> my 23andMe suggests that I'm like 600% more likely than the average person to develop celiac. And I certainly did. But there have been millions of people that have lived in these environments and never clinically manifested celiac. And mm -hmm. so if you're soaking and sprouting and fermenting gluten-containing grains, that can dramatically degrade the amount of gliadin, which is the, the main problem protein in the, the gluten protein. And then it's also worth mentioning that when the gut microbiome of humans was more diverse, there are people who have the celiac gene. They have the genetic predisposition for this phenotypic expression of the disease. But if they use the molecular machinery of their gut microbiome to degrade the gluten, they may have no problems. But then what happens occasionally is somebody will get, I think a lot of my health crash occurred when I was traveling in Mexico and, and contracted Giardia, a, a gut parasite, and nothing has ever been the same since then. So people can experience some sort of a, a food poisoning. They can go on a round of antibiotics, and that may alter the gut microbiome in a way that then they're never quite able to get back to that spot. So even though there are genetic predispositions, there's all these epigenetic factors, like to your point, the way that we actually prepare our food. Traditional preparation methods dramatically reduce these anti-nutrients, dramatically improve the digestibility of the food. And then also when we live the more natural lifestyle, although disease was rampant and whatnot, but people were more robust. They had the gut microbiome a biome diversity that allowed them to digest more foods. Like we've seen that narrowing, like where I am now is almost like being on a desert island. There's only a few things that I can eat and that's what works for me. That's not optimal. And that's not what I advocate for. If that's where you end up, because that's the only thing that you can figure out to make things work, that's fine. But humans should be pretty robust. Like we should be a raccoon that lives in a trailer park. Like we should be able to eat just about anything and really thrive on that. And it's only been these changes in our diet and our environment in the last maybe 50 years that I think has whittled into the ability to be more robust, to be more resilient. Absolutely, Rob. You mentioned it. The widespread use of antibiotics is one reason I remember when I was in my late teens and early 20s and dealing with acne, also wasn't eating very mm -hmm. healthy. They prescribed me antibiotics, which I proceeded to take probably for the course of an entire year. And it's many decades later, I'm 46 now, I was working with all kinds of doctors, naturopaths, I had a team of healers. So I pretty much mitigated the damage that was done, but I'm certain my, my microbiome is not what it used to be. Plus the diets that we eat, where we think we're eating varied diets, especially when we're buying a whole bunch of processed foods, we're actually eating very few foods just in produced in different ways. So compared mm -hmm. to how our ancestors ate also seasonally and they were yep. foraging, they were 
nomads. They were going over vast areas of land and eating all kinds of different foods. And with those came different microorganisms. So that's all gone. And I'm curious, you have a background in biochemistry. Mm -hmm. And I'd like to know how that influenced your approach to nutrition, to diet, and, and also to fitness coaching. Yeah, it gave me a good steeping chemistry sits between physics and biology. Like it starts putting together the molecular basis of life and particularly that kind of biochemistry spot. So understanding the way that genes encode proteins, the metabolism, like the, the, the Krebs cycle and the way that we process protein, carbohydrate, and fat and the way that our own bodies produce protein, carbohydrate, and fat. So I had a, a decent basic science understanding of the way that biology functions. And then having that kind of research background that I had, I did some cancer and autoimmunity research early in my career. It just gave me a, enough of a steeping in, uh, is this a well-designed study? What are the limitations? I could get in and read most of the literature. Uh, definitely metabolism is a much stronger area for me than say like immunology or genetics or something. I can I can gut out papers in immunology and genetics, but it, it, it's not my kind of first language. Whereas like metabolism, I'm very comfortable in that space. So I, I feel like it just gave me a huge advantage, particularly within the fitness scene. Folks usually don't go for a physics, engineering, chemistry degree. It's more kind of an exercise science, which is great, but I don't know that it provides quite the, the depth to be able and it just rip apart a paper, really understand what's going on with a piece of research. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I have a big passion for longevity, not only extending a lifespan, but also health span. Had a lot of interesting discussions as of late. So many people correlate an extended lifespan with actually an extended time of suffering because people are used to thinking, because that's what they witness and it's also what the numbers are telling us currently, that uh, most people spend the, about the last seven to 10 years in their life in some one or the other type of misery. <laughs> mm -hmm. Very sad. And I'd like to know from you if this is also something that you focus on. How do specific biochemical pathways, let's say like mTOR, AMPK, or sirtuins, how do they influence aging and how can our dietary choices modulate these pathways for actually affecting our lifespan in a positive way? That's a great question. We could probably spend three hours just like <laughs> going into that. And I've really gone through a crazy evolution and arc with all this stuff. Like 2005, I released the first article that I had written on intermittent fasting because it, it was looking at rodent models. And it appeared that if you had the rodents living on a eat one day, fast the next day, that you got these phenomenal results with regards to enhanced longevity would like double the lifespan. Pretty similar to what we saw with caloric restriction. They used to call it CRAN, calorie restriction, adequate nutrition. But the upside is the fact that the animals ate every other day. They didn't see the just precipitous loss and muscle mass and bone mineral density and all that type of stuff. And it was super compelling. What I didn't factor in at the time was one piece of this is that a rodent's metabolic rate is so much faster than a human's that a human would need to fast about seven days to get the same 
type of benefit there. And then another piece to this, and this gets out in the weeds pretty good, but it's a term called genetic reaction norms. And it's basically the energetic input that an organism puts into child rearing. And mm -hmm. I have I have two kids, two daughters, 11 and nine, and I feel like it's very energetically demanding, but compared to other organisms, humans don't invest as much biological energy in their offspring. And what's interesting when we dig into the longevity research, the organisms that have a massive energy input into their offspring get this disproportionate benefit from calorie restriction and fasting. What's what the mechanism that is thought to be occurring here is that let's say you're a reproductive age female and you get exposed to a calorie restricted period of time, your reproductive process will halt and your aging will halt with biology, anthropomorphize it, but it's thinking, okay, we're going to wait for this individual to come on to better times and then fertility will increase and, and we'll go from there. And in the organisms like humans that don't have this high energy investment in the genetic reaction norm, we see little, if any, benefit on the, the calorie restriction and, and fasting front. Now, mm -hmm. that said, what we do for sure see is the overfed state is absolutely antithetical to health and longevity. And I think that this is where... And it's funny, whether you're talking about more the vegan scene or even the, the ketogenic diet scene, there was a period of time when all this information about mTOR and uh, AMPK and whatnot, people were like, we shouldn't eat any protein. Like you want to stomp mTOR down to the lowest levels. You see this within a, a ketogenic diet circles where people will say you, you want absolutely no insulin and they would be afraid of eating a blueberry but they miss the context of all this stuff. The When we look at what mTOR does, you have mTOR complex one, mTOR complex two. The complex one elements of mTOR are critical in actually identifying cancer. Like precancerous cells, you need mTOR complex one active for you to mount the immune response that usually ends up clearing cancers. So what we find is in certain organisms that are overly calorically challenged, that have over uh, excessive amounts of mTOR suppression, you actually see increased rates of cancer. It, and this seems really paradoxical, but it, it's something that we want the right amount. There really is a Goldilocks spot in this. And lifting weights, sprint training, and things like that, those can stimulate mTOR Aerobic activity tends to be more uh, of a mTOR suppressor, but we want some dosing in that area, but not constant exposure. And an, a, a classic example of mTOR and aging just gone awry is the type 2 diabetic. These individuals age about 30% faster than the standard population. They have excess glucose, excess protein, excess calories glucose, excuse me, protein and calories all stimulate those mTOR pathways. So I think that what happened at least for a period of time was a recognition that the overfed state is without a doubt something we don't want and we don't want to emulate that. But then it, it, in my opinion, it went totally too far this other direction in which people forgot that for effective aging, you want bone mineral density, you want muscle mass. 
and lift some weights, do some sprint training, get adequate protein. Don't eat all day long, eat two meals and a snack, or maybe three meals, you know, eight meals a day or constant grazing isn't, isn't great for humans, but do some strength training, get some sun on your skin, have community, do enriched environment type things like music and languages and all that type of stuff. And then have a, a an appropriate protein load and a strength training load that really accentuates the maintenance of muscle mass. And it, if you want to, I did a, a talk for the Metabolic Health Summit. It's called Longevity. Are we trying too hard? And it has 150 slides that I go through in an hour. Like it sounds like I did a couple of lines of cocaine before this. Like I cover so much material, but I really go in depth about this trade-off between mTOR longevity and all these different factors. And I lay it out in a pretty sequential fashion. I know I ended up pulling a lot of different disparate stuff into this, but if your listeners are interested, that's a really great resource. And I am definitely, I guess maybe the last two or three years, things have shifted. Like five years ago, I was really in a minority. Like folks were really in low protein diets, fasting a lot, like doing lots and lots of fasting and I think that there's just a, there's a dose response curve attached to all of that. And personally, I would rather see people do like a 16, eight intermittent fast, maybe most days. I think you get some good uh, benefit from that and then lift weights three to four days a week, get sun on your skin whenever you can. The difference, it, uh, uh, just as an aside, the difference in people who get adequate sun on their person and, and vitamin D and all the kind of uh, secosteroid cascades that occur in that process. I couldn't believe this and I'll ping you this paper. It's mind blowing. People who get adequate sunlight are as protected from death as the difference between smoking and not smoking. I yeah. was not aware like, of that. Holy smokes. Yeah. yeah. And so lifting weights benefits you now and later. Doing a little bit of cardio benefits you now and later. Having sun on your person benefits you now and later. So where I am in, in all this stuff is if it really enhances your life today and we think it will probably help you later, then that seems like a good bet. But when I see 40, 50-year-old folks that are fasting a bunch and they're losing muscle right at the period of time when we start falling off a cliff with regards to maintaining muscle mass and bone mineral density, that makes me really nervous. Like I think that's driving things in the wrong direction. Absolutely. And I can relate so much to what you said, everything that you have shared from your well of wisdom. When I apply this to my daily life, I feel so much better. Mm -hmm. Sunlight as well. I'm, I don't know if you can see it across the monitor. I'm pretty fair skinned, so I'm not somebody mm -hmm will go out midday and lie in the sun on the beach, but I do make it a habit to spend at least 10 minutes, 10, 15 minutes in the morning sun, really taking it in and especially also making sure I, as much as I can, gaze into the sunlight. If mm -hmm. not into the sun, that can be not that good. And same goes for the evening. I feel much better. My, my brain works better. I feel more energized. There's absolutely something to it for people who haven't tried that yet. A little bit earlier and see if you can catch that morning light and just stand in it, sit in it, gaze into it if you can. And as far as fasting is concerned, I also always thought this is not a something that fits everyone. 
For example, me also, some of the ge genetic tests I took was actually recommended to me by the doctors I was working with reading my results. They told me, yeah, fasting for you particularly is probably not that great. Now, mm -hmm. I still try mm -hmm. to work within that 16, 8-hour window, and that works well. I'm not somebody who can fast for days at a time. It'll really put me in a downward spiral, but that's fine. That's But that's where it's good to not just follow ideas and fads, make sure it works for specifically for you, specifically for your body and your mindset as well. Something else you've mentioned, there's so many people who are, they're literally overfed, overfed and malnourished at mm -hmm. the same time. And a lot of that has to do with these processed foods, with the diets focused on just too many starches, too many grains, there's not enough variety. And I would like to know from you, what kind of a diet do you believe can influence epigenetic markers related to aging? And are there particular nutrients or foods that you have found have a positive effect on these epigenetic changes? Yeah, I think an interesting place that we can go that diffuses a little bit of the energy out of the diet wars mm -hmm. is just nutrient density. It, yep. I, when you look at the nutrients you get per calorie, I think that's really powerful. And then even the next layer to that is not only the nutrients that are in the food, but then how absorbable are they in the human body, which I, I think is a, another interesting thing. And I do think something that, that looks like a plant rich paleo type diet where you're getting lean meats, seafoods, nuts and seeds seasonal fruits and vegetables, when we start rank ordering all of that, and you look at the vitamins, minerals, antioxidants, but really should, we could stick very closely to the vitamin and mineral content. Like those are the things that we have to have. They're non-negotiable. The, the efficacy for health is pretty well established. Like it, it's crazy when you get into like green tea and stuff like that might be beneficial for health, but there's nothing in it that specifically we would die without just huh. as an example. But I do think that something that looks like a paleo type diet that, uh, and kind of balance macronutrients about 20% protein, 30 to 40% carbohydrate, 30 to 40% fat from these whole food sources. I think that's, a, if we were to make an analogy of throwing darts, if you're starting, that may not be center of the bullseye, but I think for 95% of people, they're going to get 85% to the bullseye with that. And so someone like me that has ulcerative colitis, a really high fiber type diet, I can't do it. I would love it. I love salads. I love really big soups with lots of veggies in it and everything, but it crushes me. So I can do a little bit of like root vegetables. I can do a little bit of fermented like kimchi and sauerkraut and stuff, but I'm talking about a half a cup, a quarter cup mm -hmm. of it. Like I, I can't do a significant amount. Not everybody is as sick as I am though. So I, I think for most people starting at that like balanced macronutrient ratio, whole minimally processed foods, that's a great place to start. And then we could do some blood sugar testing or even just like, I really like to figure out once people start with a spot like that, how do you feel six hours after a meal? Do you still full of vigor and energy? Or are you starting to slump and crash? And oftentimes what I find is if people 
find that they crash at that six, seven hour mark after a meal. One thing you might be hungry and that's totally reasonable, but I also think that if people get the glycemic load of their diet pretty on point, they can go eight, 10, 12 hours between meals and not crash. And what I find is a lot of people are just over consuming carbs, even from minimally processed sources like legumes and sweet potatoes and fruit and stuff like that. That's all great but it may still be a greater glycemic load than a given individual can tolerate. And there's a person much smarter than myself, Dr. Michael Rose. He makes the case that as we age, we hit a certain point and it depends on your ancestry. Like if you have more native American background, this happens earlier. Scandinavian, interestingly, also happens earlier that you hit a point where Neolithic foods will likely not serve you as well as going more of a paleo type diet, that we hit a point where our genetics change. And I've noticed this, like I can't handle coffee the way that I did in my twenties. And so <laughs> detox okay. pathways and all these different things change as we age. And he makes a really compelling case and he's 68 and the guy looks like he's 40. Like he, oh, wow. and, yeah. and he's brilliant, really an amazing guy. He would be a fascinating character to, to have on your show, but he, yeah, I I know him. I can make an introduction if you ever want that, but he makes a really compelling, at least an interesting case around that. So (laughs) I think when we look at a nutrient density perspective, that's a reasonably grounded place to start having a conversation around nutrition. Think about glycemic load. So try to get that right. Be aware of immunogenic foods. Like I, it, it took me forever to figure this out. I can't do nightshades at all, like tomatoes, potatoes, eggplants. I have rheumatoid arthritis, and this was worsening the the arthritis. Like I basically have zero symptoms unless I I eat tomatoes, potatoes, eggplants, those sorts of things. Also, A2 uh, dairy, I can eat. So like goat or older varieties of cattle, but the A1 dairy, which is the mainstream dairy, I can't consume that either. So there's, so you nutrient density, glycemic load, immunogenic foods. Do you do okay with these things? Do you get gas or bloating or any type of an autoimmune response? And then I think you, you are one is 85, 95% optimized on nutrition. Like you can tinker Mm. and fiddle a little bit. Maybe you play with timing. Maybe you do a little bit of intermittent fasting. Maybe you do a, a three day fast once a year, something like that. But I think that those things are the return on investment becomes much, much less than just consistency within that. And it's super boring. You can't sell a lot of books around that. Like it's very simple, basic stuff. But I also think that's where we get the vast uh, majority of the benefit that we will have from nutrition. Absolutely. And you mentioned before, there's some non-negotiables. If we want to break it down to specific uh, vitamins, nutrients, minerals, can you list your top, the top ones that oh, are man. non-negotiable for you? Again, this is my bias showing through here, but one could make the case. So we could look at like the plant kingdom and what is provided there and like animal-based products and what's provided there. And it's interesting that there are certain things like certain B vitamins, folate, difficult bordering on impossible to get from just plants alone. And I think that makes a case for things like at least bivalves, clams or oysters or something like that being included in the diet. 
some of the minerals like zinc and iron, there are plant sources, but my goodness, they're very difficult to absorb. When you shift from just like how much is it available in a piece of broccoli versus how much of it can one actually absorb, like the plant material or the, the plant materials are difficult to deliver that in some ways. Whereas things like vitamin C, oh gosh, vitamin A, pre preformed retinol, very difficult uh, to, to find in plant forms. Now, depending on your ancestry, you may be really good at converting carotenoids into retinol. Me being Northern European, I'm horrible at it. Like I literally have no genetic capacity to convert carotenoids into retinol. So if I had a diet that was devoid of preformed retinol, and you can get that from liver, you get some in meat, you get some in, in, in fish different types of butter, like really grass-fed butter, you you get some of the retinol, but that's a really difficult one to track down. Whereas like from plant sources, vitamin C clearly is an easy, super easy place to get that. There are some great vitamin E sources within the, the plant-based world, nuts and seeds, avocados, those sorts of things. But anything that is a vitamin, it means vital. So like we have to pay homage to all of those to some degree. And then I think look at dietary sources and, and see how we want to play with that. And let's say the individual is vegan and okay, let's just acknowledge that zinc, B12, some of these other B vitamins may be challenging to obtain enough or the correct amount. So let's make sure we at least supplement those so that we're topped off on that and we're not deficient yes. in these things. I'm a, yeah. Yes, I'm a big fan of that myself. I believe in optimal nutrition, uh, which I try to eat as many whole plant-based foods and a variety of them as possible. Once in a while, I eat processed foods. It's a little treat, but it doesn't constitute right. the main part of my diet. That being said, also, if I live somewhere in a environment that has been untouched by anything and the topsoil is great. Everything is just wonderful. And I'd grow my own food. I would likely take less supplements, but living like most of us do, I, I do something that I'm sure not the majority of people do because either they don't know about it. Of course, also cost is involved with it. I get blood labs two to four times a year. Mm -hmm. So I know what my baseline is. I know what's happening in my body hormonally with a lot of the micro macronutrients, et cetera. And I keep an eye on that. So I do supplement also, of course, what do you, what, what do you say? Disclaimer, we own a supplement manufacturing company, Spray Labs. We have two of our own brands, Dr. Sprays and Gateway Wellness. And we mm -hmm. also manufacture for others. We research and develop uh, products. So I know that for me is a big passion. I like to optimize my levels as much as possible. But that being said, and something else that's really important that you brought up, ancestry, our genetics, uh, this really influences how can we actually process certain nutrients or not process them. Um, I have the genetic variation uh, that uh, does not allow me to assimilate folate. I think mm. it's 50% yeah. people that actually have that. So I actually take methylfolate. Now, most a lot of people haven't even heard about that and how it can affect health, especially female health and female reproductive health yeah. is really important to know about. So I have a lot of hope in the personalized nutrition technologies that are come already, some of them are there, they're evolving, they're going to become more accessible. 
better priced that will allow us to actually determine what is the best for you? What is the best for me as far as the types of foods we ought to eat to keep our bodies running and working well, to keep our minds, our emotions, everything in, in, in a perfect balance. What are the most promising technologies you've seen in the field of personalized nutrition? And how do you think these technologies may revolutionize our individual uh, dietary planning for health and wellness? It, it, that's a great question. And I have much more optimism around it than I did 10 years ago. A lot of the early genetic testing, let, let me maybe throw one thing in there. I had so much hope around gut microbiome testing. And part of it was that I entered this scene so early. I mean, 20, 25 years ago, nobody talked about the gut microbiome. There was virtually no acknowledgement of its importance and in fact, if one talked about like leaky gut or intestinal permeability, you were labeled a charlatan. Like there, when I looked in PubMed ages ago, gosh, I, I had a screenshot and I want to say it was from like 1999 and I, I still have it on some drive somewhere. But there were, when, when you put intestinal permeability into PubMed, there were maybe like 200 responses and most of them said that it was bullshit. Like nothing real about this. There, there's nothing to see here. And then this gut microbiome and intestinal permeability topic has become arguably the hottest area of immunological research that there is. It, it's everywhere. And now we're acknowledging Parkinson's may start in the gut. Alzheimer's may start in the gut. Like I have never seen a more profound change. And unfortunately, I've seen almost nothing clinically or diagnostic that helps much in that space. So we know that the gut microbiome is super important, but, and I have really good friends in this space, Dr. Michael Ruscio, Grace, Grace Liu, who are, are brilliant with this stuff, but I've seen really limited efficacy in making recommendations to change what's happening or to make sense of the testing. People, when they do a gut microbiome test, they're taking a snapshot of what is a movie that, that changes constantly. If we watch a scary TV show, our gut biome changes. If we sneeze, our gut microbiome, it, like it's constantly changing. So I'm really, other than some broad things, like I mentioned that if you have a certain type of bacteria that has the right enzymes that can help you break down gluten, then that could be really helpful. In certain hunter-gatherer populations, they have enzymes that can break down oxalates and all these other things that seem to be problematic in modern humans. The problem is that once we've lost that stuff, it is devilishly hard to get it back. And people will try to do probiotics and then supplement and everything. And it, it may just be that we're very early in this story, but I've seen very little success in that space. If people have gut issues, they need to clean up their diet. They need to sleep better. There's certain tried and true things that, that you can do, but I would love it if I could reestablish my gut microbiome in a way that I could have a more broad and varied diet. Man, I have spent all the money on it and done all the things, just haven't seen a lot of success there. I'm hopeful that the gut microbiome stuff might be 
hackable in the future, but so far I've been really underwhelmed with it. Something that I do see much more optimism though, and you alluded to this, is this genetic testing that can give some really deep insight into what do I specifically need to make things work. Like I don't produce as much endogenous antioxidants like glutathione. And so I may benefit really strongly from an adequate protein diet plus like N-acetylcysteine, alpha lipoic acid, some of the other cofactors in the production of glutathione. And I would likely benefit from that significantly. And so I've been doing that for a number of years. I do think that at a certain point, artificial intelligence, machine learning will get sophisticated enough that I think we'll end up with a, a genetic profile. And then this AI will just ask us a sequence of questions. Like as it stands right now, AI is better at diagnosing like a cold or the flu or cancer than human doctors, like just from people answering questions. So I am optimistic about machine learning and like big data aggregation, being able to get some deeper insights into what precisely we need. Maybe the types of foods, maybe the type of supplementation, even figuring out like, are you fast twitch or slow twitch? So you should have this type of training versus that type of training if you want to optimize your physique and whatnot. So I am really optimistic about that, but I'm heartbroken at the, what I feel is the lack of ability to really do deep work on the gut other than we need to clean up the diet. But as far as like the weeding and seeding and repopulating the gut, I just personally haven't seen a lot of success in that. And maybe you have seen stuff and you're going to turn me on to the next big thing and I'll be forever grateful with it. But I've been really underwhelmed with what folks have produced there. Yeah, so I hear you, Rob. And a couple of things. There's a gentleman, Dr. Marvin Singh. He mm. is a triple or quadruple board certified doctor gastroenterologist and also very knowledgeable informed by the philosophies and the medicines of for example the eastern medicines mm -hmm. whether Ayurvedic background yeah yeah yes and also very holistically based and he I will send you the information on him he has had some incredible results with people who really had profound problems and have had them for many decades so that being said, I've also seen in my own circle of friends and loved ones, people who've been struggling for so many years with GI issues. And it's just really heartbreaking to see how that affects everything else in their life. And whether it's mm -hmm. you know, the mental health, whether it's uh, hormonal balance, whether it's how they can function and their output, whether it's mental or physically. Uh, have you looked into fecal transplants? What are your thoughts of those? I have, and that's the one thing I haven't done, and mm -hmm. it's been on the radar to tinker with it. I have a really dear friend, Karen Pendergrass, who she was so sick that she had to eat 100% grass-finished meat. Like She couldn't eat any type of meat that had any type of grain finishing. It would you could just see her face would swell up, and, and she'd have all these problems, inflammatory problems. She did a fecal transplant. She did it in Mexico and she had phenomenal results with it. Like she still eats fairly pretty clean, but like she can have a piece of bread. She could eat 
she can travel internationally and not worry about, am I going to starve to death because I can't find anything in the airports and stuff like that. So I've seen her have a really shockingly profound improvement. And then my other friend, Chris Kresser, he had a similar experience that I did. He contracted a parasite while he was surfing in Bali. And Chris is a thin, wafy guy now, but he used to be like really thick and muscular and was a Thai boxer and everything. And he did the fecal transplant and didn't really get much out of it. And so I've seen all both ends of the spectrum on, on that. And I do know that the better the typing, like there are secretors and non-secretors with this intrinsic factor within the gut and I'm a non-secretor. And so those folks tend to see fewer benefits from probiotics and even things like kimchi and sauerkraut because the bacteria have less opportunity to just take up residence in the gut. And I wouldn't be surprised if there's not some almost tissue typing stuff. It's what strains of bacteria would I really benefit from? And if I could find some gnarly old Scottish guy who has great digestion and that's my genetic lineage, maybe I would do better with that than just random person. But I think that fecal transplant, the FDA has approved it for C. difficile infections, which can be crippling and horrible. So there's clearly, even within mainstream circles, some acknowledgement that this can be a really powerful therapeutic, but I think it's also, it's still hit and miss like anything. Yes. And I saw just recently online, there was a fascinating post about a, I forgot the company's name, but a company who was looking for ideal candidates uh, for mm. donating fecal matter. Right. Was well paid too. <laughs> I yeah. think it was yeah. I think it was in the was it ten thousand or fifteen thousand per sample. They had a really rigorous questionnaire. Mm -hmm. Sadly I didn't make the cut. <laughs> <laughs> but it was really interesting to see that there's a high for this. So many people are suffering and the effects on quality of life and of course health and longevity are um, non-negatable. So I'm optimistic that this will, in the next five years, we'll see massive developments in that sector. Also, from what I've gathered from conversations I've had with people who, that's their life. That's what right. they eat, live, breathe, so to speak. Yeah, I'm optimistic. I've just so far been underwhelmed, but also I'm like the toughest patient I've ever dealt with. My stuff is tougher than anybody else's. And so if something works on me, Usually it will work on just about anybody. And then lots of folks that I work with, we will do things with them that I know didn't work for myself and it ends up working phenomenally for them. So yeah, mm -hmm. I have to remind myself that I may be like the toughest nut to crack on that front. Maybe also call to action to people who are in that community and listening who want to work with a tough nut to crack. <laughs> Get in touch. I'll, I'll do anything. I'll do just about anything. Yeah. <laughs> Would you put forth into the world all of your offerings, all of your wisdom, the community you've created? You have a podcast you just do that you do together with your lovely wife. There are so many things that you extend from your being and also to help others. You've helped yourself. It's based on experience. It's based on science. It's based on a whole lot of research. And I was really excited also to talk to you about the topic of meat and also learn. Mm -hmm. I'm very open. I'm not one of the 
types of people who are plant-based and point with fingers at others. Like my social circle, my family circle is completely diverse with regards to food choices. I myself am, I would say, probably 95 plus percent plant-based. My own philosophy is AVAP, acronym stands for as vegan as possible. So <laughs> I eat a mainly whole foods plant-based diet. I probably have a piece of cheese once or twice a year. I have a few pieces of, not feces, <laughs> thank you, Dr. <laughs> Robin, from the last part of the conversation, but I have a few pieces of fish over the year. I haven't had meat as in red meat or any other, or pork in, I guess, since, hang on, it's going to be probably 16, 17 years. Mm. I'm actually blood type O negative. According to the blood type diet, I should be eating tons of meat and should be fine. I also never had an issue back in the day digesting meat. I think the flavor is great. I was not the type of person who was grossed out by the flavor or the texture. For me, just a lot of things came together at a time of my life where I had all kinds of ailments and they stopped when I switched to a plant-based diet and mm. blood loves are great. So that's my personal experience and what works for me. I think it's very important to acknowledge that every body is different. We've talked about it before. I think science is going to advance where it's going to be able to tell each one of us individually at a low cost and probably the next also five to 10 years max, this is your ideal nutrition where a lot of root causes for disease that are based in nutrition can be weeded out. That being said, I'd love to talk to you about your latest book, uh, The Sacred Cow. And something you say there is it's not the cow, it's the how. And you actually say that the answer to a broken food system is not no meat, it's better meat. And I'd like to dissect this. First, I'd like to talk about why and how is our food system broken? What's the root cause of that? And let's go from there. Yeah. And again, could probably do a three hour podcast <laughs> and just scrape, barely scrape the surface on that. I really do at the end of the day, I think that the main brokenness of our food system is particularly in the United States. And then we've done such a good job of exporting this to the rest of the world mm -hmm. is this highly processed, hyper palatable food. Like there's stuff that I'm 51 now, like when I was a kid, most of what's on the the shelves in a supermarket didn't exist when I was a kid. I think there's in an average supermarket, we had it in the book. There's something like 58,000 food like items in the supermarket. And there's like 11,000 of new iterations of this stuff that comes up each year. And I had a talk several years ago talking about the neuroregulation of appetite. It, it, it was right around when my second book, Wired to Eat, came out. And there was, there's a product called Dorito Roulette. So Doritos are these kind of cheesy chips and they have this smell like uh, they're amazing. They're absolutely amazing. And the Doritos Roulette in each bag, there are mildly hot, medium hot, and then melt your face off hot chips. And I was just jaw dropped when I saw this thing because Palate experience is what really drives humans to overeat. If you're given one of whatever, whether it's a steak or whether it's a bean soup or something, if that's the one thing you have, you'll eat it, you'll enjoy it. But at some point you're like, I'm good. I'm done. 
But if there was something else to eat and something else to eat and something else to eat, then it's very easy to overeat. And what was fascinating about the this Doritos roulette is that in one bag, they had three different palate experiences and it's random. You don't know what each chip is going to deliver. And so I reached out. I didn't, it, it, the products made by Unilever, this giant kind of food conglomerate. And I reached out, it, it, I looked on the Doritos website and there was a, a have questions, contact us here. So I shot in an email and I never expected a response. And I, I said, Hey, I'm a food researcher. I'm just curious, is the distribution of medium, hot, and super hot chips, does it follow a power law distribution where the there's infrequent super hot chips and then more frequent, the medium and mild? I'm, I'm just curious. And it was like two days later and I got this call back. It was actually a, a phone call. And the guy was like, one, the people in the lab are so excited because they love your work. Like you've got a bunch of fans here, which I was, holy smokes, like Unilever, Food scientists follow my work, which was crazy. And then she said, and then to answer your question, yes, this follows a power law distribution. And what's great, and I will circle this back around your question here. What was crazy is that these folks have spent millions and millions of dollars to figure out how to make food-like items hyperpalatable. The Lay's potato chip tagline, are you familiar with it? You're it, it, it bet you can't eat just one. And it's, I'll take that bet all day long. And so I really think the most broken characteristic of our food system first is that we have subsidized and developed these hyper palatable foods that have displaced almost everything that really looks like food that actually is food. So First and foremost, I, I think that's a huge problem. There was, gosh, there was a news piece and it was talking about an all vegan supermarket had opened up in like the Netherlands or something like that. And people were really excited, but it had this tiny little produce section. And then the rest of it was just processed food. There was really no real food in there. And I think whether you're going to be paleo or vegan or what have you, like that's the deck is stacked against you if you're mainly getting it out of boxes yeah, and bags. The same shiitake, just differently packaged. Yes. Yeah. 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 So I really think that's a, a, a big deal. And then when we get more, it, so that circles into what I think the big problem of our food system is. And what, what I think is fascinating is the big food producers understand the neuroregulation of appetite at a level that is so sophisticated. They are operating at such a high level. I think that they use folks like my work talking about the neuroregulation of appetite to inform the way that they make foods more addictive, which is it's crazy. But then most doctors, most dietitians, if you throw this idea out there that our food system, our food environment is remarkably addictive and very difficult to say no to, and it's designed to go exactly against our kind of basic evolutionary biology, they look at you like you have three heads. They'll just say, well, you need to eat less and move more and you shouldn't restrict any food groups. And I, we're 30, 40 years into that experiment and I think it's just failing horribly. Okay. So I, I think that's a piece of all this. But then when we get into meat and animal husbandry and whatnot, we've seen massive industrialization in that scene. And what's interesting about that also 
is like in the United States, people eat on average still about the same amount of animal products that they have like versus 50 years ago. It's a little bit less overall. But what they've swapped is chicken for beef. Used to people ate more beef and lamb and things like that. Now folks tend to eat far more chicken. And I would make an argument that's actually from an environmental perspective, an ethical perspective, actually a, a bad shift because mm-hmm. uh, even your Costco or Walmart feedlot cattle spend 70 to 80% of its life on grass. And then it gets finished in a CAFO feedlot kind of environment, which isn't great and could be dramatically improved. There's all kinds of improvements that could happen to that system, both ethically and nutritionally to make the, the whole thing better. But chicken and pork were something that was really rare as a staple. They weren't staples in food systems up until about the 1940s. And then with the industrialization of our food system and these massive crop subsidies and massive amounts of overproduction of crops, it allowed for the intensification of the production of things like poultry and pork and stuff like that. Woodrow Wilson, one of his campaign things when he was campaigning in the early 1900s was a chicken in every pot because chicken used to be like a once in a while treat because it wasn't the fowl are not primary herbivores on the planet. It's like uh, goats and sheep and and beef and, and, and things like that tend to be. So we've really shifted the the impetus or the emphasis of our food system in a direction that is dirty, is inhumane, and really doesn't provide the the best of kind of economics or nutrition or really anything like that. And and again, it's, it's a lot to unpack, but chicken has been portrayed as this cleaner, more Mm. benign meat. And it's just really not. And it's a hard thing for people to wrap their heads. Yeah. People are, don't even realize when the premium sections of the supermarkets are in the premium supermarkets, you have this, they label it as air chill chicken. A lot of Mm -hmm. people don't even know what does that mean? It means that this particular chicken hasn't been dragged once it's been killed and defeathered and degoven, whatever. It hasn't been dragged through water. Through chlorinated water. Exactly. Through chlorinated water. So they do it to, quote, disinfect, amongst other, the chicken. But what happens is they don't prepare a new, fresh, chlorinated bath for each bird. No. You have countless birds being dragged through the same water that may be chlorinated. So two things. Either it's so chlorinated and that stuff gets absorbed into the chicken, (laughs) you'll later consume it, or it's not chlorinated enough to kill any diseases that these birds may be carrying. And a lot of these birds are actually diseased because they're raised under conditions that if we saw them, even friends of mine who love their chicken, if they saw it, they would not touch chicken for quite a while anymore. And it's also done because when you drag them through water, guess what? It adds weight. You can make more money. So all of these things, this industrialization of producing meat and the subsidizing of it, of course, which makes it much cheaper to buy for us consumers than other alternative and potentially much healthier foods. And not just speaking about vegetables, but Mm -hmm. speaking about healthier types of meats has really gone awry. And we look at situations like they're having in China right now. The population loves their pork in order to supply them 
with these huge amounts of pork, what are they doing? They're actually building skyscrapers to, quote, raise the pigs in. Right. Create more space for producing more meat under conditions that are really unsanitary. You don't actually get a healthy piece of meat out of that. You get, I, you could not pay me to eat that even if I ate the meat. Right. So when talking about the, what you mentioned before, these hyper palatable types of foods that are just so many millions of dollars are poured into them to make them addictive. And then of course, the types of also animal proteins that are just, if we look at them, nasty. And it's not what you would want fuel your body with. If you look at your body like we want to liken it to a machine, which it's obviously not, but let's just for fun play with that. You wouldn't put some type of rotten oil into your Ferrari. Yeah. So what can we as consumers do? And also keeping in mind that probably most of us do not have the knowledge of all of the complexities that go into choosing the right food, not the time. Also, maybe finances are restrictive. What can we do to affect these food systems and make them better? Yeah, it, it, really good question. It, it's, uh, let me just take a stab at like the finance piece just as a beginning, and then I'll try to circle this back into what I hope we can do at a more literally global level. But my co-author with Sacred Cow, Diana Rogers, she did this great analysis where she looked at grass-fed, grass-finished filet and the price per pound versus Impossible Burger. Mm -hmm. And the Impossible Burger was twice as much as grass-finished filet per pound. And so there's this perception that these, again, fake foods, these foods mm -hmm. that are, the tech scene loves this stuff because mm -hmm. it's IP, it's intellectual property that's owned and then can be scaled. And I'm okay with people making money. I'm, I'm, I'm a capitalist at heart, but let's be transparent about what we're doing and then let that win. And what's interesting is these fake meats are sold as being more sustainable. They're not. They're actually more resource intensive. That's why they're more expensive. They're not actually all that healthy. Like the European Union has largely banned the importation of this stuff. Italy literally just two days ago said, we will not have fake meat in our country. And so I think that is a big first step. Like the, the United States loves exporting bad behavior. Like we are great at it. And for your global audience, wherever people are living, they need to fight tooth and nail to maintain their traditional food systems. Like the Netherlands and Ireland are taking animal production, mainly grazing animals. So these are animals that live on pastures. In, in Ireland, there are farms that the deeds for these farms have been traced back 2,000 years. And these things are still functional. They haven't destroyed the local environment. This is where I think like properly raised, particularly grazing animals can play a, a huge part in the local economy and supporting traditional food systems. And I, I think there's good nutrition to be had and everything. But I think something that really needs to be done is not allowing the exportation of IP as food, intellectual property as food. And it, it like, don't stand for it. And again, if you want to be vegan, great, but also look at what is happening to the destruction of traditional food systems. This is where we need to look 
across different aisles. And maybe I don't agree with what all these people are doing in totality, but are, is the idea of protecting traditional foodways a smart thing to do? Like I, I've done a fair amount of speaking to and for people in South and Central America around the need for them to maintain the integrity of their traditional food systems, because there's this perception that if they can eat like Americans, that shows that they're more wealthy and upwardly mobile and everything. And that's great, but it also makes them sick and destroys the the traditional food systems that they've had. So I think that as like a beginning place, the maintaining the integrity of traditional food systems, whether you're in the Netherlands or Ireland or Central America, I think that is a critical feature that needs to be highlighted. And we need to celebrate the, the amazing resilience of local food systems. Like this is a Another piece to this is the amount and types of foods that people eat have plummeted over time. Like the United States, I forget what the number was in the early 1900s. There were something like 200 varieties of apples available. And now there's four main varieties of apple that take up the whole space. Same goes, yeah. same goes for corn. Same goes yeah. for tomatoes, potatoes. Even if we look at animals, the types of chicken that are consumed. Right. Nowadays versus the types of chicken that were consumed 100 years ago. So everything has just been reduced, streamlined. And I think what you said about keeping the traditional food systems in place is vitally important and whatever they're based on. Because when obviously you're taking on a, a behemoth there, you, you're taking on big ag and mm -hmm. whether it's focused on growing plants or on producing animals. So that being said, how can both plant-based and meat-inclusive advocates work together for promoting sustainable food systems? I, I think, again, like you you really just hit on it, it is an acknowledgement that our, our traditional food systems have always had plants and animals in them. And so I think that to the degree possible, eat more locally, eat, eat with an, an eye towards local food production. And that's a real scam even here in the United States, like on the animal husbandry side, the big players have consolidated the ability to process meat to very centralized locations. And that's all controlled by the, the Food and Drug Administration, the FDA. And these big players will actually buy the time at the meat processing plant so that local producers have nowhere to, to deal with their meat. And so there's some things like that, that that need to be changed. Senator Tom Massey put forward a bill called the Prime Act about a year ago, and it looks like it might actually go through Congress, but it would basically uh, enable in the United States, local food producers, local meat producers in particular, a local butcher shop or high-end restaurant that has butchering facilities could process that meat and sell it at a local level. Versus what happens right now. So I live in Montana and there's lots of cattle around here, but there's no USDA inspected processing plant anywhere nearby. There is one in Wyoming. So these animals that are raised here locally get shipped to Wyoming about 800 miles away, get slaughtered, get processed, then they get shipped back here. So the carbon footprint, the stress on the animals, and it's all because there's a, a monopoly on this stuff. So I think also looking at, at 
the monopolistic methods that have been used by big food to keep the the small time operators out. And so this is a, a, but we also hear the people who raise cattle, they also raise corn and they raise soybeans and they raise all kinds of other stuff. And I think that just trying to lean into more of the locally produced food system is a smart move. But that said, I'm also not one of the guys that thinks that we should stop. Like if you live in Toronto and you want an avocado, that's okay. You're not destroying the planet by doing that. You're supporting a, a diversified global economy, in my opinion, and that has a lot of good too, despite the carbon footprint. If we, th- there's a, a a funny kind of calloused saying, but the original eat local was the dark ages, and there's a little truth to that. Like a, a globally networked food system is really awesome because we can share the abundance of the world in this kind of cool way. But I I do also think that there's a case to be made for leaning into the staples of our dietary practices should be more local and at home. Yeah. Sure. And also speaking from obviously the global population is very diversified. People move from what by heritage used to be their home countries to other countries, continents even. But when there is apparently scientific evidence that if you eat according to your ancestry, let's say for me, Nordic, Scandinavian, that that would be actually the healthiest for myself. As a little side note on the avocado, I have not informed myself enough about this. And I know you were just uh, using this as an example where, which I want to connect to what we said again, to get big agriculture out of the picture, focus on smaller producers where we can, local producers. There's apparently quite some controversy around avocados. There's a documentary called, I think it's Avocado Wars. I haven't seen it yet. Yeah, yeah. My interest, it piqued my interest though. I love avocados. <laughs> I buy them all the time. And there was like, oh no, it's looking at the avocados in my kitchen. Am I supporting something really horrible that's going yeah, on? Yeah. There's it, so it's much a, stuff that's hitting us, right? It's a little bit like the palm oil story, like the red palm oil where it's destroying habitat for orangutan and stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah. And so here's my pitch. So there's a paper and I can ping this to you later, Mm -hmm. but the least harm principle suggests that a diet built mainly of large grazing animals produces the most food, the most nutrition and the least harm. And it, it goes through and details this stuff. Two-thirds of the Earth's landmass are grasslands, and they're amenable for doing mainly producing grass and then the animals that eat that grass. And I think a lot of our dietary woes could be, at least in part, solved by eating more, more locally. If we have this access to local food, then I, I think that there's... It, Maybe it solves some of those issues around palm oil and avocados and like the intensification that goes into producing that stuff if we just simply get more of our calories from a local perspective. Like I I think there's an interesting case to be made for local economies, diversification within the local economies, food security. COVID was a big eye-opener. Like a bunch of our manufacturing plants got shut down, some of them burned down, but there were some real choke points that became abundantly clear that our food system, this just barely on time delivery thing, 
man, a war, a pandemic, a cyber attack, like all of those things could set up our food systems to be not really there for us. So I, I think like I, we, this next year, we will have sheep and goats and alpaca and chickens as the full lineup for what we're doing. But we have great relationships with the other people in our local area. There's a, our next door neighbor does bees. And so we've got some trade going with her and we're going to start doing some bees and working with her to facilitate that. And uh, unless you live in a, a really straight up urban environment, um, it's difficult to, to directly do this. But even on a small yard, people can grow a fair amount of their own food. It's a little yeah, bit of time, a I mean, little bit of effort, but yeah. Yeah. Here, there's also, again, laws coming in where people yes. are told what they can grow and what they can right. on their own property. So yeah. it's really ridiculous. It, 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 it hamstrings people from being self-sufficient, which my cynical side suggests that that's the feature. It's not a bug. Like they want us dependent on this stuff. Yes, I, yeah. I agree, Rob. And I'll be curious to read the paper you mentioned before. I have to do a deeper dive on that. It's uh, interesting, of course, that we have so much grassland. I personally had the privilege to visit some amazing grassland in wilderness, actually, mm -hmm. in eastern Arizona. I know that some of the biggest issues that people who are there, also indigenous people who live with in this wilderness and a particular friend of mine who spends most of his days in there, something interesting that, that was referenced to me, told, shared with me, was that so at certain times of years, the cattle ranchers can bring their cattle up there to graze. They often also don't respect the the cattle roam free, so they'll also right. enter right. reservation land and so forth. And the cattle actually disturb the other grazing animals, whether it's the, the like elk, elk and antelope, yep. et cetera. Yep. And so there's something to be said for not disturbing the naturally existing biodiversity. And something interesting that was shared with me was that the, let's say the, the feces of the elk or the deer or even the wolves within, I don't know, days or weeks would disappear. The cow dung that was found at a particular places, easy to find again places, a year later would mm -hmm. still be in the same shape and had not decomposed. So that's something that piques my interest. I'm curious whether that's because of what these animals potentially injected with, supplemented with, or whether it's, I, I have no idea. No, it's just that's something a... that really piqued my interest. So there's a really fascinating piece to that. Most of the conventional cattle herds are wormed. So they're given things like ivermectin and they're uh, dewormed and they get a parasite load. There's good to that because the animals can be healthier. Sometimes they can get such a parasite load that it can make them unhealthy. But this parasite load is a natural state of affairs, like the bison herd that used to cover North America, basically from like Mexico all the way up into the northern reaches of, of Canada, they had these parasites and what these parasites ultimately are dung beetles. And the mm -hmm. dung beetles play a just critical role in dealing with converting this cellulosic, partially degraded plant material back into nutrient rich soil. 
And so when you look at it, so, so this person gave you some really great information on this, people like Joel Salatin, people who do holistically raised animals, they don't generally worm their animals. And so in the spring, cows will poo, the sheep will poo, all this stuff's going on. And you look out in the field, man, there are little dung beetles just rolling this stuff around, planting larvae in it, which is breaking this stuff down. So what happens in that scenario is that the the uh, uh, the the commercially managed animals don't have that step in the life cycle active. And so then the dung is left to either oxidize due to the sun or if it gets wet enough and whatnot, then it'll eventually break down. But it's supposed to be habitat for dung beetles and for other organisms that life cycle is broken by the, the deworming process. So yeah, and it, it's a big factor and it's a major factor in why certain grasslands don't thrive like in in both the book and the film piece that we did more more highlighted in the film piece diana interviewed ranchers down in the chihuahuan desert of mexico and this is an area that is just blasted it's like a moonscape there's barely anything that that grows there but in the local folklore they, they'll say yeah there used to be like chest high grass here and nobody can believe it. They're like, oh, this is just a made up stuff. But you, when we went down there, you get off the main plane and then you start driving. You're driving for five hours out in the desert and it's just scrub brush and cactus. And then like up on the horizon, you're looking and it looks like a tidal wave. And you're like, what is that? And it's where the this local rancher for the past 15 years has been using holistic management to raise his animals and you enter an ocean of grass and the grass is like chest high in the areas where the animals haven't grazed it yet. They, when they rotationally graze and they don't get any more water than the rest of that area. It's a desert area, but the, these perennial grasses, when they're well-maintained, they may be five or six feet tall their root systems go double that depth in underground. And <laughs> these are the things that then sequester water. They hold water instead of it just running off at, at the surface. When the plant is growing, it will send sugar into the root beds to feed both bacteria and fungi. And the bacteria and fungi mine minerals out of the soil to put it into the plant that is then eaten by the animals or gets incorporated in the plant but when we do the conventional grazing and particularly the conventional farming because of the use of synthetic chemical fertilizer, which is a miracle on the one hand, like it really is just a, an amazing thing, but it puts all the nutrition within a couple of inches of the, the topsoil. And so the roots don't grow deep. And so then we end up losing our topsoil, but the, and all that topsoil is carbon that has been sequestered out of the atmosphere. So this is a, the people listening or probably they've heard cattle are really bad for the environment because of the methane emissions that they produce. They produce no more methane than if the grass just grows and dies and rots. It's all part of a carbon cycle, like the same molecule of carbon that is either carbon dioxide or the center of a methane molecule. It's all the same load where we get more carbon coming into the environment is from fossil fuel use. And so it's really important to make that distinction, it's funny when I've given this talk at grade schools, 
the kids were like, oh yeah, the carbon cycle. And they get it immediately. And it's whether you have cows there or not, it ends up being the same amount of carbon in the total environment. It's not like you magically produce more carbon or more greenhouse gases adding cows or not. With adults, they look at me like I'm crazy and, and, and I'm really at a loss oftentimes for how to better explain this stuff. That If you're really concerned about new carbon entering the atmosphere, altering the, the carbon dioxide mix of our situation, then you really have to look at fossil fuels. And if you are really concerned about that and you want a slick solution for removing carbon from the atmosphere... Grazing animals that are properly managed are, are arguably like the best technique, best technology that we have. We can reverse the desertification that has occurred in the Middle East, in, in South America, North America, the whole area from Las Vegas to Salt Lake City out in, in almost to the plains. That used to be a giant grassland and it was overgrazed and destroyed and is now basically a denuded desert. Yes, and this comes from agricultural and industrial techniques, processes yep. that work against nature. So that being said, you mentioned before the diet wars, which of course we have the keto and the paleo and the vegan and the vegetarian. That this, that there's so many. Don't leave out the carnivores; they'll they'll have their oh, feelings. Oh no, no, so, no! Yeah, I'm getting yeah. I'm getting to those too. So <laughs> the we obviously have a lot of things that need to get readjusted in order to create a sustainable future for the entire human family, not just for a few privileged people who can afford to choose what they eat, how they eat. That being said, a big part of creating this future is also about communication, about not being pitted against each other. How, in a let's say, an ethical vegan's ideal world, entire humanity will not eat any animal products anymore. I personally don't think that's ever going to become a reality for a whole variety of different reasons. And I also don't think that's necessary for somebody, let's say, who connects with your message. I'm making up a hypothetical person, like I made up the hypothetical ethical vegan. The ideal world would be, okay, there's all these amazing grasslands and, and we have all these amazing herds and it's all done in a respectful, holistic, biodynamic way. So between these two ideas or ideals for each side, how can we foster a more respectful and understanding dialogue between vegan and meat-eating communities, given especially the, the strong ethical and health convictions on both sides? I, I don't really entirely know. I, I wish I had a pithy soundbite answer to that. Your question is way better than what my answer is going to be. Social media is fascinating in that we can gain more information more rapidly than ever in history. If you want to tinker with diet and experiment and biohack and everything, my God, like you go on Instagram and bounce some ideas around and all this stuff. It, it, it's so incredible. And also, if people aren't aware of this, the algorithm is optimized to pit us against one another. If you watch, is it the social dilemma that, that yep. film that, that dug into this? They figured out that the you get the greatest engagement when you get pissed off yes. and you get into a fight. I have really walked back the amount of time that I spend on social media. Like I do a, a very selective peppering on there and I try to make it mainly 
educational, mainly about holistic management and like sustainable food production has been the the bulk. I talk a little bit about basic nutrition also, but I've really tried to to pull back from that because I just get embroiled in this stuff. I've focused more on doing writing on like Substack and also going on podcasts like yours, people who are respected and smart and passionate and they care and just providing a, a venue for having a discussion around this stuff. It's I'm the kind of mainly carnivore keto guy. And I eat this way because it's the only way that I can control my autoimmune disease. And so maybe some folks who are really in the vegan scene and man, I've tried everything. I would love to have a giant salad. It'll destroy me. Like I can't, this is where I'm at. And I, I end up doing the best I can to help as many people as possible along the way. And I remember Joel Salatin, who's this pretty famous holistic management farmer, he was asked by a, a vegan family, they, okay, you're raising all these animals, but you also raise corn and squash and all this other stuff. But what are you going to do for us? And Joel basically said, if you let me produce the food that my family eats, I promise you, I will produce the food that your family eats. And mm -hmm. so there was this mutual respect with that. I, I will say this, it, it's interesting. Most of this drama, most of this story occurs in the wealthy Western world. People who are living hand to mouth, none of this is on the radar. None of it is of interest. And, and some of the stuff that I think is really like we, we talk about like diversity and respect for like indigenous cultures and, and whatnot, there are like 40 million women around the world that the cultures that they live in, they cannot own physical property other than grazing animals and their whole wealth, their whole societal structure is like goats and sheep and cattle. And there are people in wealthy Western societies that are telling them that they're destroying the planet and they're horrible. And so that there's some, now this is a different story than Cargill raising chickens in boxes. Entirely, this big, entirely you know? different story. Yeah. And fuck, man, we got to get to a spot where we can make the distinction between the Somali sheep herdess who's supporting her family in the only way that she can and the way that they've done for hundreds, if not thousands of years, and be able to have a distinction or a filter that is not chicken raised in a square foot cage. 100%, Rob. I could not agree more. It would yeah. be like me telling the... Inuit to grow salad in the snow. <laughs> and we talked about that. Funny, it, it, it's funny that you mentioned that. You you say that in jest, but the bulk of the Inuit food guide pyramid that was provided by the Canadian government was juice and cereal grains derived materials, and the traditional Inuit diet was like this tiny capstone. And these people were healthy until the westernized diet was voiced upon them. So I think that this is a, a piece of this story too, is recognizing that there's a lot of deep cultural history around our food systems. Forbes had a piece that I thought was fascinating, and I, I could ping this to you too, but it made the case. It said, and I don't want this to be controversial. I don't want it to be adversarial, but it, it made this case that Vegans are unwittingly becoming the emissaries of big food. 
all these grains, all these legumes, all these soy products and whatnot are really amenable for being turned into fake food. Right. And then it's IP and then it's owned and it's got a long shelf life and all this stuff. That makes total um, sense, Rob. And I don't think it's controversial at all. I think one really needs to look at what do I as a consumer and perhaps also content creator, what do I actually propagate? What am I supporting? And every once in a while, I may have some, whether it's any of these fake meats, maybe once every two months now, uh, rarely, because it's not a whole food. I know it's a treat. I know it's not great for me. Maybe. So it's just not what I choose to eat. And I could not agree more with you on what you said around IP. Yes, making money is not necessarily a bad thing, but what does it mean with regards to controlling our food systems? How does it mm -hmm. affect people? whether it's the consumers in the supermarket or whether it's people who are directly exposed to the environments or the environmental changes caused by those IPs actually taking effect and the things getting produced. Um, it's, for me, that's on a very similar level as is the animal agriculture, the unsustainable animal agriculture. These are things one needs to look at pragmatically and not uh, emotionally. Well, and, and I, I think the emotion there, hopefully, that we can cultivate is compassion. Right. Like, <laughs> we don't need more fire. We don't need more vitriol. The algorithm does that great for us. <laughs> Mainstream media does that great for us. If you want to be embroiled in a fight, like it's, we're fostered in that direction at every turn. Mm -hmm. And I think that going forward, it, particularly in the developed world, the, the developing world, I don't think this is going to be much of an issue because I don't see them abandoning their traditional food systems other than when big business goes in and convinces them that this is the way to go. I remember when tobacco sales were failing in the United States and in the developing world. So they went to the developed world and they foist uh, all this stuff on them. When it became obvious that infant formula, although it's great if you have to have it, if you're in a pinch, if there's a situation there, but for a long time in the United States, it was portrayed as being superior to breast milk, and it's simply not, and there's all kinds of knock-on consequences there. They took that message to the developing world, and I think it's super unethical and has a lot of knock-on consequences, and I think that our global food system will look a lot like that going forward. Yeah. Mm, mm -hmm, absolutely. I will have a inspired and thought-provoking discussion with you at any time, Rob. I've really enjoyed this conversation. You've been so gracious with your time. I That's really a pleasure and a privilege. And there's... <laughs> I'm going to shamelessly actually plug something here. There's a question I always ask if there are certain practices for health, well-being, spiritually, mentally, physically, that one of my honored guests does that have enhanced their lives. I'm going to shamelessly plug your product. <laughs> oh. uh, I would like to, this is, and I'm not getting paid for this. I just had the privilege to try it. This is so tasty. So this will become part of my uh, daily uh, health and wellness practice. Can you tell us more about this briefly? It's an electrolyte product that we developed, gosh, five years ago now. And because I eat a low-carb diet, basically a ketogenic diet to manage all the health issues I have, I do pretty well on that. But I do Brazilian jiu-jitsu. I used to do more like CrossFit type stuff. 
And that like hard glycolytic activity, just it, it's hard to do without carbs. <laughs> Fat is pretty good for, for going long and, and slow, but when you go hard, it's tough. And I, I, I just assumed that the, the struggles that I had athletically were just written in stone, but I, I tracked down some coaches that were really knowledgeable in this space and they looked at what I was doing and they're like, I really think you need a lot more electrolytes, specifically sodium. And I was like, oh no, I salt my food. I'm good. Because what do you ever do when you talk to an expert? Of course you ignore what the expert tells you. And so I went about a year hanging out with these guys and they were kind enough to not just kick me out of their circle, but they, they just kept hounding me. They're like, try to fix your electrolytes, try to fix your electrolytes. I finally did. And it was like a light switch was flipped. I couldn't believe how much better I felt. And then when I looked at the people that I serve, like I, my crowd is a lower carb paleo autoimmune scene. And when I looked at all the complaints that they had with like low energy and lethargy and sleep issues and whatnot, I'm like, oh my God, all of these people I serve, probably 95% of them are deficient in sodium and, and electrolytes. So we put together this, how to make your own, we called it keto aid. It, it's basically this much table salt, this much potassium chloride, some magnesium citrate, lemon juice, stevia, shake it up and go. And we just put a PDF online about this. And in six months, we had a half million downloads of this thing. Wow. And I wasn't using it as a lead magnet. It was just like, I wanted to help people. And they're like, this is so awesome. It helps me so much. But I have problems whenever I'm traveling. TSA doesn't like my three bags of white powder in my bag. <laughs> Can you guys think of doing like a convenience thing, like a scooper or a stick pack? And so we launched it in 2018. And I, I think Element is either the fastest or like the second fastest growing health and wellness company in the world. That's it, fantastic. It's just like crazy. Yeah, I can't even believe it. But that's basically been our story. Yeah. Congratulations. And seriously, I was, I've tried all of the flavors except for the one that you can drink warm or hot, the chocolate flavor. They're all just so delicious. This is actually we put, like, before we, we put cocaine in them. So that's really the, the thing that makes them super addictive. Yeah. No, thank you. I'm stoked. We put a lot of time and effort into trying to make them good so that it would help serve people. So I'm, I'm stoked that you've enjoyed them. That's awesome. Oh, no, very much. So much so that before I even hit record, I asked you, look, can I overdose on this? And you gave me the good tip to just basically trust my palate when I yeah. taste too salty. That's when my body's actually saying I've had enough. I haven't gotten there yet. So Okay. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. 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 So Rob, thank you so much for coming on the show today. It was really a delight. I appreciate you and appreciate the conversation we had and all the wisdom you shared. And please do ping me those articles you mentioned. I'll also make sure to put them in the show notes. For people who want to learn more about you, what you do, to reach out to you, where can they do Robwolf.com is the main hub. The main thing that I do a little bit on Substack like you mentioned, my wife and I do a mainly weekly podcast and it's Q&A. And so if people have questions, they can fire those off to me and I'll do my best job to either answer them or provide resources to track that down. But that's where everything exists. Fantastic. You have a beautiful rest of your day. I certainly hope this was not the last time that we were able to exchange thoughts, Rob. Thank you so much. Thank you. 
For those of you who want to do a deeper dive and start optimizing mentally, physically, and spiritually, head over to my newsletter to superhumanize.com slash newsletter and sign up. Superhumanize. Accelerated evolution. 